0: Welcome to Tales from the Fog. I'm your host, Casey, and with me is the amazing and wonderful Veronica. Hey. Today we have a very special podcast. We're doing something a little bit different. Um, we have a politician on.
1: Yeah, we um, we discovered a gentleman by the name of Liam O'Mara, whose name we, we mispronounce um, often because when we first heard it, it was pronounced O'Mara to us. So, um, please forgive that and sorry Liam for that. Um, but it was a wonderful conversation that went all over the place like our conversations usually do. And, um, it was enlightening and educational and he was just a joy to have. And, um, this is going to be interesting. So depending on what side of the political spectrum you are on, if you happen to be, you know, a listener of ours, you probably know where we stand, but, um, We hope that even if you do not align with us politically, that you will listen and just, you know, give it an honest, open ear. And just because why not? It's always good to hear if this isn't your side of the fence, then just to hear what the other side has to say. And um, but if you if you do align with us, then that's fantastic. You'll probably, you know, groove with a lot of what this guy has to say. Um, But I had a really good time speaking with him. He was very intelligent and I liked Listening to you guys chat. Oh <laughs> yeah.
0: But yeah. So without further ado, here's our interview with
1: Liam O'Mara. O'Mara, roll the tape. I'd like to welcome
0: everybody. This is Liam. Is it O'Mara or O'Mara? Because I've heard it both ways.
2: Yeah, and you and you will because <laughs> I <tend laughs> to people, but um, it's it's technically O'Mara.
0: Okay. O'Mara, okay. And you're running for Congress in the 42nd district out here in Riverside. Correct. Um, Typically, we don't do much political stuff, um, but this year is very, very different. There's a lot of different facets going on, city, state, countrywide, all kinds of things. So thank you for joining us. Maybe you can help uh, give everybody a little perspective on what's going on and fill us in on on a bunch of stuff. But I guess starting out, um, maybe just tell everybody why did you get into running this year for... Congress and uh, what kind of platform you're you're running on
2: well that's kind of a big one right at the gate <laughs> yeah. <laughs> welcome um, yeah welcome I mean the uh, the short short version for running um, and there's really there's there's two aspects to it I mean one of them is just the uh, the kind of personal aspect that it seems like it would be like even feasible I never consider myself to be a, a potential politician but We've been changing a bit in terms of our approach to politics, and there's a lot more people who are looking for something authentic for real people and not just like generic, scripted, kind of like you know, perfect little people that you know. uh, And so, I I mean, I saw people like Bernie out there going with his hair out. (laughs) Like, like, yeah, okay, if if that's resonating with people, then I can do this, (laughs) why not? But the thing that drive, drove me to do it, like, why? Like, why would I want to in the first place? Because yeah. it's, it's just not something that I really ever considered. I've always been interested in politics. I never wanted to be a politician. But I, uh, I mean, I, I'm a historian. So I spent a lot of time looking at where we've been and how we got to where we are. And I came to that late in life. I didn't actually get into college at all until I was 30 and then went straight through to a Ph.D., um, so I, I mean, I have a working class background, no one in my family gone to college. So I really, I really relate to people's economic struggles and I was poor before I got into college. And by the time, I mean, graduate school is not for poor people. I mean, let me just say it that way. It's not yeah. for poor yeah. people and it's not for people that don't have working spouses because by the time I finished, I had 300 grand in student debt. Ooh. Oh my um, gosh. so I'm, I'm carrying a mortgage without, the, without the house. Right. Yeah. I mean, I can still relate both from upbringing and from the, the choices that I made because I, I wanted to do something you know valuable and give back. And it was worth the debt to me. I don't regret any bit of it. I would do every bit of it again. But I can really relate to economic struggles. And I have to look my students in the eyes year after year and explain to them why and how they will be worse off than previous generations of Americans. Hmm. And that's a very uncomfortable situation to be in, given that the American dream was always like come to America and work hard and your kids will be better off than you. And, you know, land of opportunity and all that. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And that's what they always said that this is the land of opportunity. And that's what we were, <laughs> we have been able to teach people and it's just, it's just not true. Um, just across the board, we are in sharp decline and have been for 40 years. Um, so do
1: you think that there was a time when that was true?
2: It was, yeah. I mean, not obviously for everyone and obviously, you know, racism and slavery and everything else, Mm. but generally speaking, yes, Um, immigrants used to be able to come to this country, work hard, and their kids would be better off, right? Um, Mm. And and this is true even for um, historically persecuted groups of people, whether you're talking about um, Irish, Jews, Chinese, you know, I mean, people have come here and struggled through tons of, you know, racism and everything else and, you know, all the prejudices. I mean, hell, the the, the Ku Klux Klan was actually at its national height in terms of membership and activism in the 1920s, when their primary targets were the uh, the, the, the Catholic and Jewish immigrants from Europe.
0: Oh wow! Because
2: it, it more broadly appealed to lots of people. I mean, there's a there are always strong nativist trends in this country. You know, uh, you know, same thing with like the Know Nothing Party in the middle of the 19th century. Again, you know, uh, you know, Catholics and everything else. <laughs> and kind of fine. Um, you know, and obviously early 20th century, Chinese Exclusion Act, yellow peril and everything. I mean, we've always had these waves of different racism and nativism in this country. Um, but people have always come here and at least managed to be a bit better off generation by generation. You work hard, your kids go to go to school, and you do a little bit better. And we tended to pass policies that helped with that, at least for quite a while. Yeah. Like the, the reason we got a public school system in the first place in this country was actually to increase opportunity for people to give Makes more sense. people a, an access access to a, a basic education that would let them thrive economically, uh, rather than just leaving it to people who could, you know, afford tutors or whatever for their family. Uh-huh. I mean, we were trying to extend that opportunity for some time, and, and it seemed like, you know, we were at least... On the right track all the way at least through the Johnson administration at least in terms of like economic development again we're leaving out tons of other significant problems here you know obviously the 50s and 60s a whole lot more racist (laughs) but there are there were at least attempts to deal with a lot of the underlying economic concerns and to extend opportunity for more people and since then it's gone in exactly the opposite direction one of the ways you can see that even too and especially in the uh, since again we're um, we got the, the race issue in the background there. I mean, if you look back to when uh, MLK was talking about the economic issues and talking about poverty in America, you know, I mean, the, the Million Man March was not was was actually a poor person's march too. It was really about trying to solve poverty as well as racism. I mean, they were always interconnected for King as well as a lot of other bigger issues like foreign policy and everything else, which we tend to leave out when we talk about him. But the uh, when when you were talking about poverty back there in the mid 60s the black white wealth gap was gap was about four to one wow. and today it's ten to one wow we're going in the opposite direction and while we were desegregating for a while since the 19 late 1970s it's actually reversed and we're, we're actually becoming more segregated in
0: schools uh, like as far as communities go
2: in communities and in uh, and in schooling yeah we basically, well, we've, we spent a couple of decades trying to integrate schools and neighborhoods and, you know, trying to, you know, like, hey, let's let's try and deal with some of these problems. And then we turned around and started marching in the opposite direction.
1: So is there anything um, we hear a lot about systemic racism and things are kind of built in a way that is detrimental to, you know, people of color and, and people with with, you know, less means immigrants. What kind of policy, and like, is there anything in in particular, or is it just the nuance of policy in itself that has made that problem worse?
2: I think it's more a matter of policy being created by people, and people having unexamined biases of their own, like mm-hmm. certain uh, ideas that just might make more sense to them. I mean, just a simple one. You, uh, oh, pardon me. Just thinking about when uh, when they pushed through that crime bill in nineteen nineties you know, and uh, kind of building on the whole, like, drug war and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, they set different sentencing for uh crack cocaine and powder cocaine. Mm-hmm. And the reason is pretty starkly obvious. Yeah. Yes. Rich white people snort coke. <laughs> but um it's more a matter of, like, it's just, it's there, like, you know, that's, it's just their thing, you know, I mean, and a lot of people can rationalize that oh, it's not really racism, but a lot of people involved in these things really, for some people it's more explicit than others. For many people, it's a matter of simply never examining them. Others, it's quite explicit. Certainly, when uh, when uh, Nixon's war on drugs started, it was explicitly racist. Yes, yes. and yeah. a lot of the a lot of that really continued, you know, and it certainly continued with a lot of the Reagan era uh, officials that did it. But this is something that you know hit in both parties too, you know, that you wouldn't notice or you wouldn't like even. Even if you don't think of yourself as a racist, you might not notice that sentencing disparity because, you know, of course the inner cities are full of crime and we should want to stop the crack cocaine epidemic, uh, but you don't really think that, you know, plenty of white kids in college are snorting tons of coke. (laughs) (laughs) And and if the drug is the problem, then hello, you know, deal with both. But it, it never really was. But a lot of it really is just sort of buried for people.
1: That just sucks. I, I mean, it's it's heartbreaking to watch because, I mean, okay, so I wanted to, I, I think I'd we talked very briefly about this before, but I, I didn't, I hadn't heard your name until I got a phone um, uh, survey. So I don't know, was it you who did the survey or was it your opponent?
2: Uh, how recently?
1: Oh gosh, a couple of was, months ago?
0: Yeah, it'd be probably like three months ago.
1: So I had never... Um, I mean, I was concerned about politics to the point where I vote blue and that's about as far as I would like stick my toes in the water, but um, for some reason I didn't decline the call and I picked it up and I answered it and it was a person doing a survey about um, you know for a Congressman for the 42nd. And I was like, all right, you know what? This is the moment I become old. I'm gonna take this survey. <laughs> and so the lady, so she's asking me all these questions and she's, you know, have you ever heard of this candidate? And I'm like, nope, and then how about this candidate? And I was like, equally no. She's like, okay, great. And then she just asked me all these questions. And then um, she's, the way that it was worded, I would surmise that it was your opponent yes. because things that I find lovely and charming and appealing in a candidate. Um, I think that somebody on the other side may not, (laughs) may or may not, you know, I don't like to speak. Just based on their
0: reactions.
1: Yes, the person seemed kind of, like I got really jazzed about a few different things. (laughs) And like, I don't know, we can cut this part out if we need to, but he said, like this person is, you know, an outright atheist and- um,
2: Isn't even accurate
1: okay <laughs>
2: but but to me like an atheist, um i
1: don't know I, but i think that was a scare tactic b- because that would be considered oh no they're an atheist
2: yeah yeah i mean you could i mean if you really wanted to torture things try to shoehorn me into that but it doesn't make any sense no i've never self-identified that way you know no obviously. and
1: it shouldn't matter but that i told yeah, you that but, story to ask you this question <laughs> Um yeah. Do you have an opinion on how heavily religion weighs on decisions that are made by public officials and members of Congress and things like that?
2: Well, I mean, yeah, in that it's, you're technically not supposed to do it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, beyond the fact that people's morality always affects your decisions. So whatever, wherever that's coming from, philosophically, religious, you know, I mean, it's going to affect your perspective on things, yeah. but if your reason for supporting something is particular, uh, is a particular piece of religious dogma, then you're not really discharging your constitutional responsibility effectively, because that's, yeah. that's yeah. not the point. I mean, the whole point of this country in its structure, and this is one of the things that bothers me a lot about our education system, is that you know the whole, like, this is a Christian country argument. Um, it's a Christian country in the sense that the majority of the population has historically been Christian. That that's, yeah. that's really it. It's not yeah. a Christian country in its structure. It's liter- it was literally opposed to that. They decided that while the countries of Europe had established religions, we would not, and we would welcome everybody from the beginning. And uh, and made they made sure that didn't matter if you were Jewish, Muslim, whatever, you could come here and you would be fine. And also guaranteeing um, freedom not only of religion but from religion. Yeah. We also forget that our first three our first three presidents were not christians which you know if, if this if you've got the whole like if you've heard the whole like this is a christian country myth the fact mm-hmm. that you know washington adams and jefferson were not actually christian is often mind-blowing mm-hmm. it's, yeah uh washington and adams were, were, were deists Right. Uh, common 18th century philosophical perspective um, that is actually somewhat closer to my perspective. I, I'm uh, the technical term for me. We uh, It's uh, monism, but it's hard to explain. But um, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're like, you know, uh, the universe is God kind of thing. Like if there's a yeah. holistic, you know, sort of, yeah, uh, you know, it's a, sort of <laughs> nice. But yeah, um, <clears throat> I'd be more like a I call myself a, like a stoic monist or like a spinozist at times. But, mm-hmm. the, um, but the deism is basically the idea that there's a creator god that created the universe and then gave up, stopped doing anything, just no longer involved from that point on. Like, I have created the universe. And then he goes to Tahiti and like sips Mai Tais and just never does anything. Else. <laughs> That's what I would do. I like that idea. idea. Yeah, the idea is they couldn't quite understand where a universe would come from. They still needed a kind of like primal force to start things. Yeah. Uh, And this is actually common in Greek philosophy as well. You had to have like some kind of force at the beginning of it, the the unmoved mover, something that starts the universe going. But from that point on, if it were to take any kind of active role, then science would be impossible. Mm -hmm. You know, an example I'd use in a classroom is like, okay, so if I drop this pen, it's going to fall and it's going to fall every, every time. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But if someone can like snap their fingers and make the pen stop, because, you know, miracles, then science doesn't work. Right. Yeah. We we can no longer say there are laws, that gravity no longer is a law. They wanted then a a God that basically created a clockwork universe, they called it, like Hmm. set the mechanism in motion, created the laws of the universe, but having created the laws, stepped aside. Jefferson was at best a deist and probably an outright atheist. Um, it's only after that that you start to see Christians come in, but even there, they're 18th century Christians, which is quite unrecognizable to a lot of people today. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, they they were not creating the country intending it to be a Christian country, but one where it didn't matter whether you were Christian, Jewish, Muslim, atheist, deist, you know, what mattered was our, a secular legal system that protected everyone equally. And I think we've Um, lost sight of that.
1: yeah, Yeah. When did that change?
2: Slowly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess, you know, time, people evolve. Yeah. I mean, by the time you get to um, to Lincoln, um, it was already getting to be difficult for people not to be Christian in politics. Um, Lincoln himself was was an avowed atheist, but he was convinced not to go public with that fact and to leave it only among his friends um, because he had political ambitions.
0: Yeah.
2: I'm sure we've had plenty since then, <laughs> too. But yeah, well, probably. By that point, already at the sixteenth, it was getting quite difficult um, to to navigate.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I guess I have a hard time reconciling that there's so much corruption and and such short sightedness while all the lo- all along like toting this line of, you know, wholesomeness, family oriented, um, you know, equal and friendly and you know supposedly, godlike. But there's some nasty stuff happening that we'll never know about. And if we do know about it, then it was like super bad. So that's, I guess that's, I mean, we don't get to talk to potential politicians. Basically, I already think of you as like, you know, you won. So thinking of as a politician.
0: <laughs> I think positively, right?
1: It, well, I was politicians like the other. It's yeah. like, a, it's not a matter of if you go, it's when, you know, when we send you away. Like, right. um. I'm curious, I suppose, like what kind of, um, what could you, what do you do? What, what do you, what will you do? What does it mean to be a a, a representative of the 42nd in California?
2: Well, like uh, to take a step back here and looking at the way they're sort of depicting morality and how this stuff works, in fact, your survey, yeah, um, when, when I was going around, I remember being told by a couple of people that they were getting these these crazy questions out there and like, did you know that Liam O'Mara thinks that Christianity is a myth? And what they did was they pulled that out of my dissertation and I'm using it in a technical term because all religions are, it doesn't, it wasn't even a comment on whether something is true or not. It's really, it's not, wasn't relevant to the.
0: Yeah, anything from a historical.
2: But fear tactics are important and, and, that's, right. and, and that's the key here. Um, so if you're thinking in terms of basic morality, and especially from the, uh, the, the Christian moral perspective that's so common in the United States, I would have to say that most of our politics is spectacularly unchristian. <laughs> yeah. Certainly our incumbents' behavior is spectacularly unchristian. I mean, if you, if you, anybody who's actually read the Gospels and still wants to be rich, powerful, turn down uh, care for other people, doesn't like, uh, I mean, anybody who has read the Gospels and taken them seriously, how can they possibly not want there to be poor people in the U S or homeless people in the U S or how would they possibly want people not to have health care? Oh, well, they're poor. They should die. I mean, what? <laughs> I don't think me?
0: that's what the Bible says.
1: Right. Well then there's, I thought of it as more like the the Bible is written in a way to keep the weak, weak and separate and controlled and controllable. So that those who had the money and had the power and had the control were able to keep partying without having to worry about, you know, an uprising because people were being held down by the fear of God. (laughs) And I get that vibe a lot in the way that policy is now. It's especially the way that we crack down on drugs, which is a medical issue in my opinion and not, Mm -hmm. you know, some, it's not, uh, I feel like being a bad person today. So I'm going to go take some methadone. Like, I don't think that's, you know, how... brain works but i'm not a doctor and i certainly know nothing about sociology or you know most people in general but i get a a vibe that it's a lot of like well you know you could do this and you could have you know equal pay you could have equal opportunity and on the surface you kind of do but things seem to be written in a way that does not really tell that story
2: yeah and i think what you're getting at there and the way I can relate that to our current political situation is that all around the world, you see the same basic dynamics. Um, people will come along as spiritual or religious or philosophical reformers, people with a particular idea and a particular moral set of lessons, you know, things that they want to get across. And then if it gets large enough and power structures relate to it in any way, like the powerful convert or this or that, then it's suddenly connected to power structures. And in that sense, you start using it to justify where you are in the sense that when people are using religion to control, they're using, they're, they're simply manipulating it. Uh, they're, yeah. they're using it as a, a handy technique. And you can honestly do that with anything else. We can do that with tons of other types of, of philosophies. People have done that with um, everything from like um, on opposite sides of here, like, you know, nationalism and socialism. Mm-hmm. have also been used to manipulate people and they're both explicitly secular as, as philosophies go. So you can basically twist anything. Um, the, the texts themselves tend to develop more organically from what people are doing, but the way they're put together and more importantly, the way they're preached, the way they're used within power structures, that's you know, where you get the more, um, yeah, I mean, people can manipulate anything in order to support themselves, so yeah, obviously, if you're super rich and you want to stay super rich, then you're going to skip over the passages in the Bible where Jesus says, like, "Give up everything you have and become a beggar to follow me." Right?
1: Yeah.
2: Isn't right. <laughs> like, oh, well, yeah, I'm. whoo, turn the page quickly there. <laughs> True. Um, yeah. But by but, that
1: same token, like, if you want to make a difference, like in your case, you are, you know, you're swimming upstream to make a difference and to have a, an impact and, you know, the, the motives are good and are right. That yeah. also does take money. It takes resources. It does. Yeah. So it's, um, it's kind and, of a balance.
2: Yeah. And on, on that side, it, um, it also does take morality. You know I mean? Having a, a strong like, ethical center, at least That's yeah. nice. so it's almost Like a set of beliefs that, that guide different people and, and they are important. Uh, And ultimately, that's what it's what it's about, whether whether you're more on my side as a philosopher or you're more like you're fervently religious or you're more one of the the spiritual, not religious, It, it ultimately doesn't matter. Because in any of these cases, you're finding something that gives you meaning, that gives you a sense of purpose, helps you relate to other people. This is why I'm here. This is what we're all supposed to be doing. And that can guide your actions. But just wanting to do good in the world obviously isn't enough, and that's what you're kind of pointing at there. Because yeah, I mean, I I want to I want to do well in the world. I want to like, I'm one of those like I'm going to leave the world a better place than when I was born kind of yeah. people. But just to be able to teach these subjects and just to be able to like, you know, blow minds for a living. Was 300 grand in student debt. Yeah. You yeah. I mean. I, I mean, it was. there's there's trade-offs there like I had to consciously choose to leave a better paying job and take on you know a amount of poverty in order to do something that mattered to me in politics it is expensive to get your message out there yeah Yeah. you know you talk to people and I've I've been talking to people for two years now and in outright conversations with people just sitting down over coffee or in, in meetings or whatever I've had people whether they're whether they're Democrats, independents, or even Republicans say, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. I, I actually know several people who changed their voting registration after talking mm-hmm. to me, that, right. you know, that, that this makes sense, no one has ever put it this way. And I think that we can do a lot better if we teach people the right techniques for discussing these things, for framing the issues, but that's a whole different conversation. But I would yeah. say that talking to people isn't enough because there's almost a million people you gotta talk to. That, there's no way for one person to do that. So it does require some kind of media access. You know, you do have to do phone banking and text banking and everything else. And yeah, and it is actually quite difficult, especially with an entrenched incumbent like this who's taking 98% of his money from big corporations and and oligarchs. Mm -hmm. Hard for anybody to compete with those.
1: How does that happen? How, How does, forgive the rudimentary question, but like, how does that kind of lobbying work? How is he able to do that for so long?
2: Yeah, sadly, I mean, okay, so back in the 19th century, you could literally walk into the uh, the Capitol building and hand an envelope full of cash to people. We, we we banned that. We said, okay, you can't bribe people for legislation anymore. And then people found a backdoor to it. I mean, we use the term lobbying today, right? Right. But lobbying literally meant catch someone in the lobby as they're walking by and say, uh, 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 Congresswoman, I uh, would you like to, you know, and like, you know, I, I think you should support this. That's That was all it was. And in the sense of... Being able to come in and present your grievances talk to the the office like call up your congress critter yeah. that kind of lobbying that's great i love that but what we've done is as elections have gotten more and more expensive we've allowed people to raise money that and connected that to lobbying so people are able to make contributions not like to you personally but to your reelection campaign yeah it does kind of make you beholden to them And whenever people have objected a bit to that, we've set basically personal limits. Oh, you can only donate $2,800 or whatever there. But then they started creating political action committees. And now you can donate not just to the person's campaign, but also to a PAC without limits. And then it can run its own kind of ads and help that person get reelected.
0: That's how that documentary about Hillary Clinton came out. It was a side... Republican Action Committee that put together that documentary and it was all like mostly false information and stuff, but
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah and, then, and actually it ended up leading to a Supreme Court ruling that removed the, the very few restrictions we had. There, there were not many by that point. Realistically, we've been on this path for a long time. The first election that was thoroughly corrupted by money was way back in 1896, Corporation stepped up and said, We are not letting that Brian guy win and dumped a ton of cash in McKinley's race. Wow. And ever since then, the amount of money has gone up steadily. It just never stopped increasing. And now there are no legal limits at all on how much they can spend. Uh, and as it is, if you combine that with the fact that we've been systematically undermining the real economy for decades and essentially created an oligarchic system where most wealth and most power is in the hands of a small number of people. Yes. And then you give them the ability to direct elections. We're on the cusp right now of becoming what's called a managed democracy. Something a bit more like Iran or Russia where they have formal elections, but you pretty much know who's going to win. It's, it's determined in advance.
0: Oof. So what would be the best way to combat that from happening?
2: Yeah, we do still have a way to do it. And this, is, this gets tricky. And uh, I, I have to say, I talk about you, throughout my career, my profession, I talk about a lot of depressing stuff. But yeah. I'm always um, trying to like point people to the the silver linings, you know, the you know, the like, okay, here's a good way of seeing this or here's here's how we can get past this. You know, I'm always looking for those. So I don't want people to think that we're just doomed, that this country's gonna collapse into a fascist dictatorship, which is entirely possible. So please be a little scared but <laughs> <do> something about <laughs> don't think like Oh, well, throw your hands up in the air and let's all be nihilists, And it doesn't matter anyway. We still have a choice here
0: yeah.
2: because we'll <laughs> have just enough uh, of, a, of a pull to do it. Um, so think about, we have people in Congress, right? So you've got your, you know, you know 435, whatever, blah, 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 you've got people in Congress. And you need to replace just enough of them to start shifting the balance of power.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And it won't take as many as you might think, but you put in like 100, like, Squad type people the, the, the clean money candidates that aren 't taking the corporate cash, you know put in a hundred of them, and another hundred Democrats will probably sign on with with their agenda to get public funding of elections because they 'll see the writing on the wall if they mm-hmm. don 't do this someone 's going to push them out of office you know it 'll be enough to, to tip the balance of power, so what we have to do is step up and support enough clean money candidates and this is true honestly regardless of your politics, there are a handful of people on the right that are doing this, far fewer of them running as Republicans trying to issue this money, but there are a handful. Um, And honestly, there should be more because corruption is a bipartisan issue. Mm -hmm. 90% of the population, according to the major polling from Pew and whatnot, say that corruption is a significant issue and and hell, Trump won in part on it. That was that whole drain the swamp narrative. Yeah. right. The swamp is the lobbyists, it's it's the money, it's the, the corrupt party machinery. Now, granted, he hired nothing but swamp monsters for his cabinet, <laughs> so not really ever serious about it. But his base did like the the idea, and they do think of him as less corrupt somehow because he already had money. You know, again, even so, so setting aside completely whether or not that is realistic, yeah. the belief is there, and that's the important part. Which means that we do have more in common than we think. There are a lot of there are a lot of places of common ground. Between the left and right in the U.S., and mm-hmm. corruption is actually one of them. If we can get in and support enough clean money candidates to replace enough people there and ban this lobbying, then we'll actually be able to elect people who want to do things for the American people who want to solve our problems again. Right now, Congress's approval rating is usually anywhere between seven and fifteen percent. People tend to dislike Congress intensely. Interesting. And it's hard to it's it's hard to dispute that. I mean, I I totally get it. I mean. Our congressman pushed through one piece of legislation in the 1990s, and since then he's like, "I renamed this post office." (laughs) Not really done much of anything.
0: Yeah, no, I don't know a whole lot about King Calvert, um, but I do like he basically skipped out on even voting on a bunch of stuff, right? Like he just doesn't show up and vote at all. So he's not even doing what we hired him to do.
2: (laughs) Doesn't do a whole lot of anything other than push through earmarks for corporations.
0: Okay. which means that yeah. a
2: particular bill is going in there to do something and he's going to slip in a few sentences on something that has nothing to do with the bill itself just to redirect some cash to one of his corporate sponsors that's that's basically all he does is that how you politics <laughs> if you're not really interested in serving the public yeah if you're in if you're in it for yourself i mean he's made himself a millionaire by being in office wow you know that was that was the whole point for him really i, I mean And he's there. His constituents are Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, you know, like, you know, Sierra Nevada Corp. I mean, big corporations like that are putting him there. Not us. He does nothing for us. Yeah. You know, every two years you get a a media blitz, you get like those phone surveys, you get radio ads, television ads, signs get posted everywhere. And he comes around and brags about, like, I got more money through this earmark for a new freeway off ramp. Am I not awesome? Like, (laughs) dude, you're policies are why we have so many bedroom communities out here and the traffic and pollution have gotten so bad. Right. Yeah. So a new off ramp is just not solving any problems for ordinary people,
0: mm-hmm.
2: but it's yeah. just, it's, if you have money, you can kind of like just blanket your name out there. Mm-hmm. And it, it is hard to, um, to credibly build up opposition, you know, to build up name recognition against something like that.
1: Yeah. So when you serve in that role, um, it's more of like a national type of, of mindset, right? Like you're thinking about things that affect the whole country, but do you also affect things that happen like for your actual district?
2: Yeah, both. It's, so it's in a weird situation. Technically, the bills that you're voting on are, are all affecting the entire country. So yeah. It's a national basis there, but mm-hmm. you can push things through that do, bring, that do affect your specific district. Mm-hmm. But people will either attach them to other bills like, like Calvert, many people do, or you would simply introduce something like, okay, this is a major problem. We have this, you know, this is that problem, this piece of pollution or something like that. And you convince your colleagues to sign on, sign on to it. But what they can also do, because there's a bit of a bully pulpit, because there's influence from the seat, they, do, they can actually affect the local politics and the state politics. And this is honestly one of the ways in which Calvert is not terribly effective for people here. And Republicans might want to reconsider it just on that basis alone because he doesn't have much pull in Sacramento. Sacramento is overwhelmingly Democratic. Yeah. So oh, I see. They're going to generally ignore him. He doesn't have as much influence there. Um, I would. So I would be able to actually get more money and resources from Sacramento to our district. Just oh, on that, I see, I that's see. That's smart.
0: Yeah, it makes sense.
2: I mean, it's one of the reasons like, okay, so I'll talk about, um, we have massive traffic and pollution in the area in part because more than a third of the population has to commute out for work.
0: Yes. Right.
2: Admittedly, you know, me too, because there are no universities anywhere in the 42nd. We don't have a single one. Um, so for me to teach, I have to drive out Along yeah. no more than a third of the rest of the population. Yeah. Why don't we have a university here? There's a million people in this metro area. hmm I mean, we could put one right in the middle of the district very easily. There could be a Cal State there. I mean, the closest Cal States are um, way up in uh, San Bernardino or down mm-hmm. in San Marcos. Yeah. There's or Fullerton.
1: Or Fullerton, yeah, yeah exactly. Three yeah. different
2: directions, three different counties. We have no Cal States in Western Riverside County.
1: And to get to all of them, you have to take a freeway that everyone and their mom is also driving on.
2: <laughs> right, which means you yeah. add the traffic as well. But so in the Murrieta-Temecula
1: area, there's no like higher education places?
2: No, nothing at all. <laughs> I mean, we, we only have two community colleges in the district too, and they're tiny. One is like the Norco Community College up yeah. in the north. There, and then we have a satellite campus for uh, uh, Mount San Jacinto in, uh, in Menifee.
1: Mm-hmm. But they're
2: both quite small, but those two community colleges are all we have. And because mm-hmm. of that, we're never gonna attract the, 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 the good paying jobs from the industries that would build out here. There, there's no reason for people to like relocate good jobs into our area because mm-hmm. we don't have the highly educated workforce that they would need, right? Okay. Ah, oh, sorry. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on.
1: We have two little dogs, and they just demand.
2: No worries, I have, I have a dog and three cats in here.
1: So. Oh, you have a dog as well. What kind of dog do you have? Dog. <laughs> <laughs> it is dog flavored dog.
2: Yeah, I mean she's a she's a mutt. Um, huh, she okay. has some of the color pattern of a uh, of a shepherd, but not at all the body type. Oh, fine. <laughs> <That was good. laughs> She, she's thinner. Her ears lay down. She has a a curly husky type tail. You know, oh, yeah. she doesn't all like a shepherd, but she has those color those colors. So the shelter called her shepherd mix. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. That sounds beautiful.
2: She's she's pretty, and she's got the, the little eyebrow things that bounce around, which is great. <laughs> very <laughs> expressive. Oh
1: sweet. Oh, sorry for the interruption. I can, I can
2: call her over in a minute if you want to see her. Uh, but yeah, the thing I would say, just in terms of like relation to Sacramento, you know, have, having a democratic Congress critter in this district would make it easier for me to push them to open a Cal state campus in the area. And not only does Calvert not have the pull to do it, mm-hmm. he doesn't see the reason to do it because he doesn't care about economic development. So it's like a. One, who two, Calvert two, doesn't. Yeah. I mean, why, why would he bother? I mean, what makes him money are the real estate developers in the area. I mean, he himself is a real estate developer. So all these bedroom communities, mm-hmm. that's good for him.
1: But it, yeah. I mean, it's nice that there's, you know, quote unquote, affordable housing out there, but it's not all affordable. Like Temecula is, I mean, we wouldn't consider that affordable. We wouldn't even consider Murrieta affordable, like possibly like Elsinore, possibly Menifee. We're in Corona now, you know, it's like, it's a stretch, but I mean, we could benefit and, and make it not a commuter town anymore. That would be lovely. Like, yes, it's lovely to live in Temecula, but to have to drive three hours to get to the office one way is just asinine. Yeah. It's just too much.
2: Yeah. yeah the, the property values keep going up, which I mean, some people like because, Hey, they're, they're investment or whatever, but, uh, and I, I get that, but what it's doing is it's pricing more and more people out of it. Yeah. So a lot of the people who already lived in Riverside County are now being priced out of housing because of the people that are moving in from LA and orange and San Diego into the area. Uh, which is one of the reasons that the poverty level has stayed stubbornly high. In his 28 years in office, the amount of people in poverty has actually gone up, not down. Um, And we're heading very much in the opposite direction because a lot of people never recovered from the 2008 recession, and now we've just threw them into a worse one. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really going to make things much more difficult. And with housing costs going up everywhere in Southern California, there's not a lot of option. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So since we're on kind of the financial thing, um, I know that you support UBI and you also Mm -hmm. support Medicare for all or some kind of single payer health plan system. Mm -hmm. Um, So what are your thoughts? Because I know I've been following Stockton, who's been testing UBI Mm -hmm. um, and seems to be helping a lot. But what are your thoughts as far as how that would stimulate the the economy and, and what it would actually do for the economy. Cause I mean, I have a lot of people that are just like, oh, you're just taking people's money and giving it to somebody else. And I don't think they really understand yeah,
2: yeah, the yeah. benefits
0: and what happens with the money that's going out and all that, so.
2: Yeah, I want to push back hard against this idea that it's some kind of charity or wealth redistribution or <gasps> socialism, huh? because yeah. it's not. <laughs> I mean, theoretically, basic income as a policy originated on the right. Guaranteed minimum incomes actually came from the hard right-wing economists, you know, back in 50s, 60s, and 70s. So this is not some kooky idea from the far left. Um, And the key behind it for for basic income is, well, uh, first we have to understand the difference, I guess, between the real economy and what the media tells us is the economy. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit that first, rig because there's so much misinformation that shows up around that that people are always like, oh, the economy was great under Obama, you know, or oh, the economy is great now that Trump's here. Like everyone's always like cheering on their side. But what is the economy, right? Mm. The, the media focuses on two things, the stock market, as long as the stocks are going up, right? Yeah. And um, job numbers, right? How many jobs are being created, right? Mm. And at this point, Neither of those actually say almost much of anything about the economy. Yeah, uh, first off, if you go back to the 1960s, 90% of transactions in the stock market were in the real economy. And I'll come back to what that means in a moment. But today, 90% is speculation. So okay. it's, it's, yeah. it's the opposite. It was 10% speculative, and now it's 90% speculative. Because of that, what's happening in the markets has almost nothing to do with us it's like its own little bubble universe where the wealth being created there goes nowhere other than to the people that are already involved. Yeah. And 85% of stocks are, are owned by, you know, you know, 10% of the country. It's
1: mm-hmm. most,
2: most people are not really involved in that. So yeah. um, it's basically like a little, its own little self-contained bubble universe. And you could see that just in this pandemic, when you saw like the massive explosion and unemployment and the collapse in our spending, mm-hmm. the markets kept going up the whole time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Never a blip right? They're, they're basically disconnected from it. There are different things that affect that and different things that affect us. Um, the other thing that they point to is, is job creation numbers, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it does not matter if you're creating a new job if that job does not pay a living wage. Yes. And, and honestly, it's negative for the economy if you're creating bad jobs. Creating bad jobs hurts us. So just looking at the numbers, what they tend to do is like job creation numbers only. Mm-hmm. That's deeply misleading, and the reason gets back it comes comes from what the real economy actually is that's the money circulating in our hands yeah you know mm-hmm. i get money i spend money the business now has money the business buys more stock they put more stuff on the shelves more people come in and buy it it's it's being circulated it's going yeah. around you know for businesses the banks the individuals and you know, it's it's circulating around right the movement of cash is the economy if you give rich people more money they put it in the markets or in the Cayman Islands or something, in like some tax haven or something. And in both cases, whether it's in the stock markets, speculatively, or it's just sitting in an account, it is now out of the economy. It's been removed from circulation. It's no longer having any effect on us at all. Yeah. Money in the hands of workers gets spent. The term we tend to use uh, among historians is is Fordism, going back to like Henry Ford. Mm -hmm. Um, Because uh, really, realistically, his greatest contribution was not like perfecting an assembly line. It was this realization that, you know, if I pay my workers more, they'll be able to afford to buy my stuff. Right. Yeah. right? And give
1: and, them the days off. They can go buy ooh, my stuff on their days off.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it's not rocket science, but people didn't pick up on it quickly in the twenties when he was doing this in twenties and thirties, because up, up to the, um, up to the depression, wages didn't, weren't going up at all. It's actually one of the most significant factors that took that market downturn into an outright depression was that people couldn't spend money. Mm-hmm. If we'd had more cash in our hands to keep the, the economy afloat, then the markets could have recovered. But when they crashed and people got laid off and there was no money, yeah. the whole thing shh, downward spiral. But so after World War it? II, that's, we, we, we did do it. You know, we, we kind of got it. You know, we started paying people better.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean for like when we, you know, go all crazy, go nuts on like Prime Day and spend all of our money that we've, (laughs) our hard earned money, which we don't have a lot of, but we've got birthdays coming up in Christmas. So we spend our money and it goes to Amazon. I mean, what, is that essentially pulling money out of our own economy?
2: Part of it is, and that's one of the steps there because- Um, While some of it does go to workers, Amazon doesn't pay its workers very well, and it's not supporting a lot of local businesses. It's actually wiping out a lot of local businesses, and Amazon tends to negotiate sweetheart deals whereby they're not actually paying taxes in the areas that they operate. So it's even taking money out of the hands of your local city governments.
1: Yeah, they they have a distribution center just up the freeway from us.
2: Yeah, and they don't pay taxes on that stuff. That's Mm -hmm. great. Nice gigantic ass building. We give them money. Like we give them like massive, like here, here is some money, please put something here. Because again, in this Republican ideology, you've created jobs and that's right. somehow a good thing. But it's mm-hmm. a good thing if it was the kind of jobs we used to create in the fifties and sixties. Mm-hmm. What they're doing now just hasn't caught up. Yeah. And where a basic income really comes in is that in the fifties and sixties, we started paying people a decent wage. That's how we created the, the so-called middle class life of people moving right. yeah. out the suburbs, getting a house, you know, like uh I got the white picket fence and the self-cleaning oven and the two-car garage, and you know, 2.5 kids and you know, the whole thing, right? Oh, yeah. Afford that. And that that could uh, that came to anybody. It didn't before it was just professionals that could do that, you know, your your lawyers and dentists and whatnot. And now a factory worker could buy a house and live in the suburbs, right? And pursue that American dream, right? Yeah. And as a consequence we had the longest sustained economic boom in American history. And we created a middle class. We broke the connection there in the 1970s. And since then, um, productivity and uh, cash for the top has continued to climb, but our wages have not gone up in more than 40 years. If you just so what rent, happened in the 70s? The same thing we made in the 70s.
1: Like, what, what happened? What changed? Was it just another slow, hey, how can we make a little bit more money kind of thing?
2: Um, it's... We get we we probably get too much of the weeds, but the there are a few significant changes in um, in Nixon's financial policy that kind of matter there, mm-hmm. uh, and people often misunderstand that too because just moving away from the gold standard itself is not a bad thing at all, but the way mm-hmm. things were done and the way they manage the economy around it, because ultimately, the fiat currency is actually better for us, you know, mm-hmm. and, and and could actually be better for ordinary Americans. The gold standard is only good for the rich. Yeah. But but some of the policy changes that came in at the same time they made that change are less well understood. And that's because he fell under the influence of the, the Chicago school and, and the neoliberals, You know, the, the focus on like supply side economics. Mm-hmm. And Reagan is the one that really ran to town with that. But the first changes there, there was enough of a shock under Nixon. And then Reagan just made things so much worse.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> yeah. And we've never really recovered from that.
1: Feels like it. <laughs>
2: And what you're looking at here with a, a basic income is that if you want an economy to grow, right, if, if we want the real economy to grow and, and more people to be better off, then money has to circulate around, right? Yeah. But we can't push people's salaries up really fast. I mean, if, if wages had kept up with productivity and inflation and the cost of living, then a minimum wage would actually be in the high 20s right now. Yeah. I mean yeah, we're, not, yeah. we're fighting to get it from seven, you know, from seven and a quarter to fifteen bucks. We're fighting to get fifteen bucks, but it should probably be like 27, 28 Especially
1: bucks. here in California, like where Especially we live.
2: Yeah. Exactly. yeah, you could probably get by with a fifteen to twenty dollar minimum wage in some parts of the country, but in California, no. It should be in the thirties. Yeah. But you can't do that immediately. Like in the long run, higher wages, even if businesses have to pay higher wages to their workers is better for them, too, because it stimulates the entire economy.
1: Right.
2: I mean, over and over, like, companies like McDonald's will fight minimum wage rate rises, and they'll say, like, well, we'll have to, like, fire workers and close locations, and what always, always happens is they open up new locations because there's so much more money being spent. Their workers are actually able to afford to eat out more, you know? Like, it helps Mm -hmm. the entire economy around it. If it happened with all businesses, right, not just in specific cities, then it would help the entire real economy and raise the incomes for all small businesses as well we would be able to afford to buy more things Mm -hmm. Uh, but you can't do that so so suddenly you know unless you're willing to subsidize most businesses in the us so a basic income helps to make up some of the difference there we push for a higher minimum wage and, and push finish off that fight for 15.
0: yeah
2: and then add in a basic income and the basic income provides a threshold that abolishes poverty It immediately pulls a bunch of people up there Mm -hmm. and then from that point on gives at least a a baseline. There's something to fall back on. There's some way to like save up a little bit here or support yourself or you lost your job. You've got a little bit to fall back on there. There's always something there. Mm -hmm. But it's really it helps as a stopgap that if you change our economic policy as a whole, we can start growing wages again. Yeah. And there's a ton of things that the federal government did that intentionally depressed wage growth. And we have to, to, to get people thinking about this a bit more, like you know, change the, the minds on this so we can put the right people in office to change those policies. Lowering taxes on the super rich lowers our wages. Yep. Like they are directly correlated. When people think about, uh, and this, uh, Democrats do this a lot, honestly. And, and I, I gotta say like, it's a mistake. Democrats are frequently saying, we need to tax the rich so we have the money to pay for these programs. That's not how it works. That's not really the point. The point of the taxes on them is that it changes the incentives in the economy as a whole. It, it causes more investment in our real economy and more investment in our wages. It stimulates growth overall, mm-hmm. which means there's more money being taken in in taxes, even if the rates are lower for all of us. You I mean the higher tax, lower taxes for them slows the economy down, and that slowing affects our wages.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: It's more like, it's it's basically thinking in terms of like the whole instead of the self. If you're thinking like, I don't know, to use like John Steinbeck's phrase like of Americans thinking themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires, like we don't want (laughs) to hate millionaires because we want to be them someday. Like, like, gosh, I don't want to be, I don't like being taxed. So why should he be taxed? Well, it's not a moral issue like that. If he isn't taxed heavily, it hurts you and everyone else, including him. We made a lot of millionaires in the fifties and sixties. It's not like they don't make money too.
1: Yeah. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Well, I had uh, one of the things that I did want to talk to you about. I talked to you a little bit about it on Messenger, and you had some ideas on a federal level. But um, so there's kind of like this whole war going on between Disneyland and Universal Studios and Gavin Newsom and when can we open it up? When can we can't? Newsom's like refusing to release any kind of guidelines on it. And it's a whole thing. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? And what should have been done at a federal level that could have prevented this kind of thing from even happening? Because I don't feel like the states should have been completely in charge of the COVID situation. And I don't think right. they were equipped for it. Um, so so what's your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. Um- When you see people complaining a lot about Newsom, and you know, honestly, I kind of get it because it has affected businesses here, like having your business, someone telling you, you have to close your business and then not stumping up the cash to support you while your business is closed. Mm -hmm. That seems kind of unjust, but the states don't have the money to do that. The states can force you to close for a public health issue, but they don't have the resources to prop up all the businesses. So you're basically just screwing people. So I totally get the anger. The problem, though, is that his hand hand was forced. The states were forced into blunt measures like shutdowns, and when no shutdown should have had to happen at all. We should not have needed to close businesses down in in this country. And in a lot of countries, businesses didn't close down if they approached it right from the beginning. So if we had been honest about what this was and how uh, virulent it is, how how contagious, then we could have told people social distance and wear your damn masks to slow it down. Mm-hmm. Right, not perfect, but it'll help a lot. Please do it instead of like lying and like, well, maybe you shouldn't, and like questioning the science and like, yeah, you know, blah blah blah. But if we pushed that from the start, that would have helped. Then, if we had used wage subsidies instead of kicking in unemployment, so if something did need to shut down, you still got your salary. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, and, and if you'd done that, even without shutdowns, what businesses could have done if a wage subsidy scheme was in place, and a lot of countries did this, that didn't have to do big shutdowns, like the Germans didn't have to do huge shutdowns, but they had wage subsidies passed immediately as a precautionary measure. And they were there for when they were needed. And what a lot of businesses did was they said, well, you know what, we'll just go to like halftime. I'm gonna send half my employees home. And that way there's fewer people in the office so we can have more space and we'll just rotate them. So everyone's on like Mm part-time. And with the wage subsidies, no one lost their income but you're only working half time. Does that make sense there?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: It introduces social distance into the workplace. If we'd used wage subsidies, we could have introduced social distance into work for workplaces all across this country, including the theme parks. And then we should have pointed up direct cash for the modifications that a lot of businesses needed to make in order to make them more social distance friendly. Yeah. Which again, you know, big places, even as big as Disneyland park could have done that. I mean, yeah, it's a big yeah. place to run, And you definitely don't want the crowds that you would normally have. No. But if you were to cut the population allowed in way down, right? If you cut it down to like a third of the the total let in, it probably could have stayed open and not Mm -hmm. been a big deal. But that would have affected their operating margins, right? They wouldn't have been able to operate at a profit. That's where the federal government, again, should have kicked in the wage subsidies.
0: I think they're doing okay in Florida and they are... I believe, well, at least when they first opened, they were at one third capacity and they seemed to be operating okay. They weren't complaining about income, so.
2: Yeah, not complaining a huge amount. I mean, it really it's, yeah. it's um, cause there's a lot of like ways in which the company can cushion these things too. I mean, mm-hmm. the parks are in many ways often loss leaders for the company anyway. And whole, whole sections of the park frequently run at a loss. Like I, I worked in food service there in the, in the early 1990s in Disneyland here. And we, we always lost money, but it wasn't the point. You know, like people were coming in and the park made a ton of money out of people being in the park and right. you have to eat. Yeah. yeah. So it just, it makes sense like within the whole, you know,
1: it's more like a service it, rather than a, a money generating revenue Avenue of the yeah, company. I
2: mean, they're making so much money on the merchandise and on the tickets and everything else that goes into there that you can afford to lose a little bit here and there. And the company makes so much money off of their other media empire Mm-hmm. but they can afford to subsidize their own parks for a while. They just don't want to, Yeah. but they, they could have like cut the, the scale down massively and they wouldn't have had to let all the people go. If we'd actually had a federal wage subsidy program in place,
0: they kept their job. Yeah.
2: Instead we have this massive unemployment issue and unemployment has, has so many ripple effects. I mean, In the short term, if you get unemployment, you're at least spending. And this is another one that people often misunderstand. Unemployment insurance is not a charity. It's literally propping up the whole economy. That gets back to that whole Fordism thing. We have to keep spending. Same Mm -hmm. with like Social Security and everything else. They're not charities. They actually are, the economy depends upon that spending. But unemployment is short term. And you have to be searching for another job, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Meanwhile, tons of jobs keep disappearing. We keep automating jobs away. That's not going to go away. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, a significant number of the jobs lost during this pandemic are not coming back. And, you know, if we take the economists that, that study this seriously, about 47% of current American jobs are going to disappear in the next three decades. Yep. Like half of our jobs are going to go away because mm-hmm. of massive breakthroughs in artificial intelligence and bioengineering and robotics. And it just, I mean, the trucks are all going to be driving themselves.
0: Yeah. Well, that's like my job. My. Before, now I'm in live events, which also got decimated by COVID. But before that, I was an underwriter. So I worked in finance, mortgages, auto lending, auto insurance, underwriting. Um, but underwriting, since it's just a set of rules, is was the first target of AI. Because it's something that's very easy for AI to understand. You say this, 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 and this, and it does its thing. And, you know, now, like when I first started, uh, we had an entire floor in a skyscraper dedicated just to the underwriting team. I mean, 150 people maybe, more than that. The last job that I had, and I haven't been able to find another underwriting job since, we had about six people on the team
2: mm-hmm.
0: and that was it. And all we were doing was just reviewing stuff that was kicked out by the artificial intelligence that it didn't understand. So, you know, you went from looking at 100 deals a day to, 10 or 15 but you know they're more intricate ones um but yeah i mean that that job i'm pretty sure will be 100 percent automated really soon
2: no that and that absolutely is the norm and it's Mm -hmm. something that people don't understand and and certainly our politics doesn't deal with it well i mean we've got this big push on on the right now into like a, a kind of dangerous right populist move where you're um Fear mongering and scapegoating about immigrants and foreigners or whatever. Here, China is taking your jobs. Mexican immigrants are taking your jobs. And jobs. Mm, No, that's that's not it. It's automation that's been taking your jobs.
1: Yes, and, yeah, and that's not stopping anytime is,
2: soon. And previous generations, because we've always managed to create new jobs and innovate in new areas. Right. But we stopped investing in education, and because of AI, there's going to be a limit to what we can do. Mm-hmm. At, at some point, you're just not going to be able to create enough jobs from the number of people there are.
1: Yeah.
2: But that really shouldn't be something to, to, to be afraid of or to lament either. And again, this isn't a, an issue just on the left either. Like capitalist economists have for two centuries said that this is a good thing and that the bigger problem for the future is going to be the rise of a leisure economy where we're all just sitting around with nothing to do. Right? <laughs> machines are doing it all for us. Yeah. And that could have been where we went we could already be down to working 20, 25 hour weeks now and still make good money because of the steady productivity climb.
0: Mm-hmm. You
2: know, when we started like rolling out computers and everything, that could have actually cut into our work hours. But instead, we're working more hours for less money because the costs keep going up. So we need to work more because we're not getting paid as much. Yeah. They just stopped paying us. As the productivity went up, they should have paid us a lot more us working less. And ultimately, what basic income is trying to do is is make up for our failure to do that and to basically lay the groundwork, because in the long run, that's where we're going to have to go. Yeah. I mean, in order to maintain this economy, in order to maintain a high quality of life and keep the money circulating around, it has to come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And if there just aren't enough jobs in the existing economy, we have to find a way to get around that. And I think one great way to do that is to start actually, I don't know, paying people for other, other kinds of work that we don't count now. You know, mm-hmm. what I do for a living doesn't count into our gross domestic product. According That's to ridiculous. all econ- economic statistics, education has no impact on the economy. I, I'm not a productive worker. Yeah. It doesn't matter if I'm working a 60 hour a week, I'm not considered productive labor.
1: That um, sounds like a scam.
2: Yeah, yeah. Child care doesn't count, health care doesn't count, elder care doesn't count. Uh, certainly musicians and artists don't count. I mean, what if we started paying people to take care of sick relatives or, you know, or, or paying people to take care of their kid at home? Like, think about, you know, like, again, go back to your like 50s, kind of like make America great again nonsense. Like when you a one person, <laughs> you know, household, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What if someone wants to stay home with the, the kids, right? What if one of the other partner wants to stay home and raise the kids? Well, what if we just paid them to do that? Because raising the next generation is work. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of hours that go into that. Right. But we don't consider economically productive, so we don't pay anybody for it. Mm.
1: That makes no sense. We're obviously not a a political podcast We're, you know, in the haunted industry and the live events industry. So like mostly like what we were concerned about is, you know, just the state that we're in and how we got here and and us being forced to stay at home. Like your (laughs) industry is like one of the last ones that's going to be able to go back. I'm, yeah. I work from home in finance, so I'm able to, you know, work in the corner and get by. But, you know, half of our, our income now is dependent on some decision that somebody yeah. makes.
0: And best estimates, especially for California, like we probably won't start to get back to normal till like 2022.
2: Mm-hmm. I yeah, because I mean, until there's actually a rolled out, um, you know, an actual treatment for this. Yeah, we can actually inoculate people against it, yeah. it's still going to keep coming back. And I think people have really underestimated how much worse it's going to get when it cools off. Mm-hmm. This virus is thriving cold temperatures.
0: Yeah. Well, it's already taking up sp- in all the colder parts of the country.
2: Right. We had all this time yeah, in the so. summer to just learn to put on your damn mask and people fought it instead. So we're going to see massive spikes all over the country. Mm-hmm. It's
1: again, it's that fear. I feel like so much of of who we are as a company, with like our policies and how we treat each other, is just fear based now. Why is everyone so afraid of everybody else?
2: <laughs> I mean, three hundred people died in South Korea total. Mm-hmm. You know, about you know, you know less than ten people died in Taiwan.
1: What About New Zealand, aren't they doing really good too? Yeah,
2: exactly the same thing. I mean, they just people put on their masks. They yeah. Kept it mm-hmm. And the government stepped in with uh, with contact tracing and quarantines for people who were, were infected, and with wage subsidies yep. for people to, to go working part time. You know, and yeah, because it,
0: it's going to be interesting. So yeah, we have like what? It's like two hundred eighteen thousand people now have died in America. But
1: Jesus,
0: there's also the stress factor that everybody's been under in the U.S. because we don't have those wage subsidiaries and all that stuff. So everybody's like ridiculously stressed out. Like how many people are just gonna die from heart related issues or something just because of all the stress everybody's under?
2: Yeah, which is true of so many other areas. The fact that we work so many hours, you know, mm-hmm. and there's so much anxiety in this country. I mean just doing having things like Medicare for all and a basic income and solving poverty would lower our physical stress and improve our actual health so much. And and so many people, it's like you it's almost like you hate your country because you're just blaming Americans for being unhealthy and ignoring the fact that people all around the world are doing much better than we are. We're 35th in health.
0: Mm-hmm. That's so not what's just interesting just is, um,
2: they do so I don't,
0: no one's really laid out an actual Medicare for all plan that you can read and understand. Like as far I know Bernie said he had a plan, but I don't know if he's ever like wrote it down and like this is the step-by-step what we're going to do kind of a thing, because um, I haven't read anything anywhere, but I know, so when I was in insurance, like the number one issue, or the number one most expensive thing in an auto insurance is and homeowner's insurance is medical pay. Because if somebody falls out your house, you have to pay for their medical bills. If you get in a car accident, you might have to pay for someone's medical bills. When I worked for AAA, we were partnered with AAA New Zealand who have Medicare for all basically. Mm -hmm. And they don't require MedPay at all. It's an optional thing to have it on your auto insurance. And so basically what we pay a month is like double what they pay a year for their auto insurance. Mm -hmm. Like they pay something like ridiculous. It's like a hundred bucks a year for a brand new car. And it's like, that's it. And it's like, and so there's all these people arguing, oh, they're going to take more taxes out for it. I'm like, but you can save money in other places if they set it up right. And yeah. like, you won't be able to be sued. So if somebody falls on your house, their medical bills are paid, what are they suing you for?
1: Yeah, like, like
0: it's gonna save you so much in the long run. I don't think people understand that, so.
1: Yeah. Or how much money we pay each paycheck, you know, just to have mm-hmm. decent health care. Not every company can pay for your insurance for you. Like a lot of it, you pay the lion's share mm-hmm. and then they pay like, you know, a smidgen,
2: but. Even when they're paying it, you actually are. Yeah, and that's a lot of people don't understand too. Uh, and one thing that, in well, it is
0: your benefits
2: <laughs> like to leave out too, which which has bothered me. So it's one of the things that in uh, discussions of Medicare that I've always said: put me in there, and I will make damn sure that this is in the bill when when it's when it's finalized. Because if your employer is paying seventeen grand for insurance, yeah, and you got that job, it was that's part of your your compensation package. That was part of what you agreed to take when you worked there, right? Yeah. Now, they're only gonna have to pay 2K and we pay 2K. You just got a massive raise. And mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I could use an extra $10,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and if you tell people like, you know, oh, my taxes are gonna go, no, I'm gonna put $10,000 of your own money back in your wallet. Mm-hmm. That gets people's attention. Mm-hmm. And Democrats tend to be terrible at doing it. When these things come up, they're like, yes, taxes will go up, but, and as soon as, you, as soon as those words come out of your mouth, you've lost the argument.
0: It's like some of those times I, it's like, especially when they're talking about Medicare for all, I wish they had like the Ross Perot graph. (laughs) So they could just point and be like, look, this is savings. This is savings. This is savings. Yeah, you're spending a little here, but you're going to, you know, you'll be better off in the long run.
2: Right. Yeah. I I, We need to do a better job of that. And I, I try to do that in like these conversations, interviews, things like that. But we really need to come up with a really nice way to market this stuff. And honestly, Democrats are generally terrible at it.
0: Mm-hmm. We just don't get things
2: across. If you if you approach Medicare for all and you tell people this is a tax cut, yeah, Republican ears will perk up. What?
0: Yes.
2: No, no. How will you pay for it? Well, dude, you're already paying for it. We're already paying twice as much as it would cost. So you're going to save a bunch of money. What? And like mm-hmm. they've uh, mind blown. They've honestly never heard that because Democrats are always admitting it's going to be a tax rise, and Republicans are saying this will raise your taxes. So certainly, yeah. Calvert's saying that. Yeah. And the new a, deal that doesn't cost us more money. that will literally make money mm-hmm.
1: This is a lack of understanding of people's personal balance sheets and people's personal profit and loss you know it's like your own cash flow, like people especially like if you don't have a ton of money, you live paycheck to paycheck. that mm-hmm. is your ledger that 's all you can think of is am I going to be able to eat you know a week from Tuesday <laughs> i'm getting paid on Friday, I can ride on water and ramen noodles till Friday. But even those who have a, you know, a ton of money and are paying all this extra money, it's really looking at your pay stub and seeing where your money's going. You know, it's right. like, how much money are you paying for this and this and this and this? And then if you were to, but not just with your pay stub, but all of the bills that you're paying and mm-hmm. what you're, you know, either fighting for or against how that directly and how it translates into dollars. Like if you could just convert everything into straight up dollars and, you know, have it be like red to show it's money that you're take, that's you losing and black to show it's money that you're gaining and really see week to week, month to month, how much stuff really costs. Again, like I know nothing about civics. I didn't seek it out, but I also wasn't taught it. Same thing with economics. I only learned that stuff because I ended up in accounting somehow. So it's like, it was an accident that I even know what those things are, but so ma- ma- many people just don't know how that stuff works and all they can hear is like buzzwords that makes sense and like you know and that raises taxes it's like oh no it's like yeah but you're paying so much money for your health care you're basically paying you know, like you're employed for the the ability to buy health care without having to go on cobra like that's the extent of your quote-unquote benefit like that's shenanigans
2: and so much of that is just it's it's deliberate they don't want a well-informed populace anymore, and honestly, you need one for a republic to survive. The the less we know about how the economy and the government work, the easier it is to turn this into a dictatorship. Mm-hmm. So we, they have been systematically undermining our knowledge of these things. I just have a great one that we should have <laughs> given your normal focus in your show.
1: Yeah, you can. We, we can Childcare. always like edit stuff in. So go for it.
2: Child care. Oh my gosh. Because people are paying twelve to eighteen grand a year for child care. Yeah. What if that was what if that was just a benefit? That'd be and wild. It should be the same. I mean, childcare, child care, elder care, all that kind of stuff should just be covered.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: If it was, you know, think about how much that would improve people's bottom lines. If you're only making 50, 60k, but you're paying 15 grand a year in childcare, yeah. you just saved a lot. So if your taxes went up by fifteen hundred dollars to pay for it. And you saved an extra ten grand.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's the same thing because it's same with like insurance and, and everything else. You get massive economies of scale by pooling yeah. things together.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, like well, with like insurance. You know, if we're all in the same risk pool, you know, how mm-hmm. much does that lower the cost? And people just don't think of it that way. You know, yeah. that the actual cost to insure is so much lower that we would all save massive amounts of money. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And the company, you know, people who want to make the money will still make the money. Oh, that just reminded me of something else I wanted to ask you. (laughs) So whether on the record or on the record, I don't, I don't know. But um, my, uh, somebody that I know and care about very deeply works for a defense company and he, you know, classified, you know, job and, you know, he's, he's like, he's very high up in this company. And like, as much as I'm not jazzed about spending money on, you know, war, and you know, sending our troops elsewhere and everything. Like, I wonder if we do end up like, so like with Ken Calvert, how he takes money from folks like that. If that were to change and we send you instead, what does that mean for those companies who do that kind of stuff and you have the government contracts and things like that?
2: It's actually a really good question. So if you want to use this by all means. You know, like okay, some, thank you. Some, um, so um, one of the tricks with cutting the Pentagon's budget that always comes up um, has to do with the way that the military industrial complex has spread jobs all across the country into tons of different areas. So no congressman wants to vote against a spending bill because it will cost some jobs in their district. And if you just pull the money out, it does do exactly that. It would cost jobs. So what you have to do is instead of just cutting that money, you redirect it think here's a, here's a good uh, way that you can immediately do this. And you can, you've already seen a little bit of that with just Trump trying to steal money from the Pentagon budget for his border wall, right? What if, and again, like the American, um, what American Society of Civil Engineers says that our infrastructure is basically a D to a D minus. It's yeah. like falling behind the rest of the developed world. So hmm. what if we let the Army Corps of Engineers just go to town? What if we yeah. let them rebuild roads, bridges, new rail lines?
0: Yeah. I mean. We're the only developed country without a high-speed rail line.
2: There you go, right? Uh, what if we were connecting <laughs> cities uh, with, with high-speed rail? What if we built more light rail systems? The light rail system in the in LA County is massively profitable and well-used, and most people have never even heard of it. What if we extended that out to the entire metro area? I mean, can you imagine a light rail run, line running down along by the side of the 15 there? Oh, that'd be and awesome. Down there and then connecting into the same system that takes us into, uh, you know, LA and Orange County. Oh, we need another line through. We don't want the, the bottleneck through the canyon there. What if we just tunnel through the mountain here underneath it, you know, <laughs> and like <laughs> instant connection to South Orange County, you know, I mean, there's, there's so many things that we could do that are technologically feasible, but no one wants to spend the money on it. Well, that money is already sitting there in the Pentagon budget and we wouldn't have to lose jobs if we redirect all that cash and all those contracts to civilian purposes. I see. Yeah, because I know
1: he does a lot of of projects and, and, you know, even holds patents and things that are very much like the end user is us. You know, it's not all, you know, highly classified defense stuff. It's very practical, very helpful, you know, really cool stuff. (laughs) But, you know, and I'd hate to see, you know, people like on his team not, you know, not have their next contract up because you know whatever defense contract they were on no longer is there or you know i I, I don't know it's like i guess it's the closest i've gotten to have it like affect me personally is you know knowing somebody who's that's their livelihood is working in an event like that i
2: completely agree i mean we shouldn't have to worry about that and honestly it's a scare tactic that republicans will use democrats want to cut defense spending and you will lose your jobs and like Uh, no, no, what I want to do is I want to spend that money on civilian purposes. And in many ways, you could subvert their, there's so many ways that you could subvert right wing talking points and flip them around to our side. I mean, just the whole like, I mean, the Trump, Trump's like economic nationalism, like his, his American first BS, Mm -hmm. which phrase is deeply problematic because of its fascist origins, but still the purpose behind it. And the reason it resonates with a lot of voters is that we don't like spending so much money on foreign wars. We don't like, 800 foreign bases and there's, there, there are homeless veterans. So why don't we spend money on Americans? Like, like the emotional reason for that is entirely understandable. So I say exploit that and say, yeah, so we should not have a single homeless veteran, let's house them all. You know, we shouldn't lose jobs here because we're def- redirecting this money. Let's spend it instead in civilian purposes and, and, and still use that. And it's not like tons of the money spent during the Cold War on defense projects didn't also have immediate civilian applications. That's how mm-hmm. got the internet. This was a defense project.
0: Yeah. yeah. And that's something they should expand. Like, I, I don't know. It's getting to the point where it's like almost internet should be considered, you know, like electricity and plumbing, you know, because you, you need to even just find a job nowadays. Like, you can't just walk into somewhere and fill out an application most times. You have to go to the website. You have to, like, mm-hmm. you know, upload all this information.
2: Yeah. It should be a yeah. basic public good. And the infrastructure yeah. in our area is generally terrible.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean,
2: so, I, I honestly have to, I'm, I'm at a, I'm at the cabin up on, up in the mountains. I'm at my grandfather's old place up in Wrightwood. Oh, nice. It's actually out of district. And yeah. I've not been able to live in my own house for months now. And it's, I, I've actually, I go back down there all the time because I have to feed my tortoises and my fish. And I now have mice in the house and, you know, I'm mean, gonna have oh, all kinds huh. of that. Yeah. but my house can't have internet. It's impossible to wire for it. Wow. What, really? Yeah. The, in- the one in Wrightwood yeah. or your, your home home? in Lake Elsinore. In Wrightwood, oh it's not great, but I can at least get a DSL connection here. Yeah. But in Lake Elsinore, I cannot get internet at my house. That's crazy to me. There are oh so my so There's so much this country that we've just, we've left people behind. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're falling behind much of the developed world too. I mean, the speed, uh, the, 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 the quality, it's just terrible compared to a lot of developed countries because we allow the companies to make money off the infrastructure itself. So yeah. they don't have the same incentive to invest in building it. If we make it a public good and a public utility and we build that infrastructure ourselves
1: mm-hmm.
2: and we've already seen that in t- cities all across the country have been rolling out their own municipal mm-hmm. broadband and all of a sudden, ah, all of a sudden charter will <laughs> lower their prices and increase their quality because now they have a competitor that can do it cheaper, yeah. but we don't need them. We could lay out that infrastructure ourselves. And if anything, just have the companies kind of compete on top to provide better c- customer service. Mm-hmm. but we lay out the infrastructure yeah and that's something the defense department could absolutely do yeah, yeah
1: that sounds like something directly applicable even if
0: it's laying lines or doing something like elon musk is with the starlink thing and just shooting up tons and tons of satellites
2: it's not all the man's shooting up probably well. but- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's tons of ways that we can yeah we can absolutely do this but yeah. Yeah, yeah. instead of just saying we're going to cut these jobs out i'd say like for every military project you cut out that we don't need, you immediately come up with a good civilian project and there are new contracts offered for that. And the same big corporations are going to compete. And they, they know where the, the writing is going. In the same way that all these fossil fuel companies are investing in solar and wind technologies. Mm-hmm. They know where they're going to have to be in 50 years. So they're yeah. all investing heavily in it anyway. Mm-hmm. If we just set up better incentives in the economy, we'd already be there.
0: Since we're pretty much at the hour now, um, why don't you give everybody the pitch on on uh, why they should vote for you I guess. I mean it's kind of been <laughs> one hour <laughs> one I'm hour of it but I'm rambling know.
2: all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no um I guess if you want to put people in Washington that are gonna put people first, right? I'm I'm representing a, a wave of politicians that are people-centered or human-centered politics. Rather than serving you know, large corporations and banks and whatnot, I want to make the economy work for you. And the economy can work for you, and we know how it used to and how it can again. We absolutely know how we can get there. But we have to have those conversations, and we have to be able to win people over. So I want to be there as an advocate. I want to be pushing the other people in Congress to adopt these kind of positions. So um, that's kind of why I'm into this and why I would hope, you know, you're interested <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> for Congress and all that business. Yeah. Um, and uh, if you're interested in more information on the campaign, you want to like, you know, get in touch with me, follow along with things. I'm super active on social media. So I'm all over the place. Just, you know, very generic Irish name, Liam womera yeah. uh, And then Liam is the, the website. So easy to find there. Uh,
0: donate as well to you at the
2: mm-hmm. website. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the top of the website, there are volunteer and uh, donate links. So they're at the very top of it. And um, don't think that it doesn't matter, especially like we're only two weeks out here that it's too late to help out. I mean, it's never too late. And, and these things really, they, they don't end anyway. We have to keep going. I mean, win or lose, these things continue and we're gonna try and you know, keep representing people here. And every little bit really adds up. There is, I think for a lot of Americans, this gets back to a very early point that came up here about uh, the political corruption, the amount mm-hmm. of like corporate cash that's floating around. Uh-huh. If you can write a $100,000 check. I don't have that. So they don't need my five bucks, right? But mm-hmm. it adds up, right? Yeah. I mean, if if we donate the price of a, a, of a coffee a month, right? Like it's just five bucks. I mean, five bucks doesn't seem like much, right? But yeah. if you set it up to be a recurring donation, so it's it's $5 a month, right? And you tell your friends and more people do it. If a few thousand people donate the price of one cup of coffee per month, you can win almost any house race in this country. I mean, it just takes a few thousand of us to step up and help out that way consistently. And if we do that, we'll put enough people in that we can change the rules and get the corruption out. So it's essentially an investment in our future.
0: So there you go, guys. Support your local politicians.
1: So um, we, I mean, we have listeners to the pod who live in our district, but um, a lot of our, our listener base lives outside of the district. Are there others like you?
2: There are, there are, there are quite a lot of people like this. Um, There are a number of lists um, that you can, you can uh, see that are, you know, people centered um, candidates. You know, um, the uh, humanity forward list has a a lot of candidates support that support basic income. Uh, Marianne Williamson uh, endorsed a, a whole set of candidates around the country that are people that you know, oppose uh, the the massive spending to corporations and the war industry and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Bernie Sanders endorses tons of people. And then there's a number of like really good um, organizations, you know, like uh, like you know, Blue America um, out of LA here or like the California Progressive Alliance that they collect lists of really good people. So sort of like Mike Siegel in Texas running, he could, he could flip a seat. Kara uh, Eastman in Nebraska, she has a really good shot at taking a Republican seat. Um, there are some tougher ones like, Audrey Denny up in Northern California or Adam Christensen in Florida that are also running against Republicans. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's quite a few of us out there that are trying to get rid of really awful Republicans, but are also really good progressive people. And we're all running like clean money campaigns because we don't want to be owned by massive corporations. We don't want to be owned by the pharmaceutical industry or (laughs) defense contractors or something. We want to work for you.
0: That's awesome do you have anything else before we go
1: no sir i mean i have i have questions for you but they're probably not podcasts where they just wanted to ask you (laughs) but
2: uh, yeah i think as far
1: as (laughs) you know we wanted we wanted to get your your name out there i i you know found you by by your opponent which i think is just blessed and wonderful and um i'm really glad that that happened because this is the first time i've ever been concerned about politics which i know is you know probably borderline shameful but um I'm glad to be here now and I, it, you know, cause the, the, our voice matters and what we do yeah. matters. And you know, mm-hmm. what, what you do now affects your kids. And it, you know, this may seem like, you know, someone else's game, but it's, you know, it's our, it's our reality. So we should probably play ball.
2: Yeah. It gets back to like, what was me you asked at the beginning about, and I was bringing up the whole like silver linings about what we can really do. Right. Mm-hmm. We do still have a voice. And this is what I was kind of like leading toward is like, everything from like throwing in five bucks a month to still voting because right now it still matters. They haven't taken away that yet. Um, It's getting harder and harder to get noticed because, you know, five corporations control most of the media we see, you know, the the parties are only preaching to their bases. There's so much money in it, Mm -hmm. but we still can find good people and we still can support them. And if we support them and vote with our, our, you know, our wallets and in the ballot, the ballot boxes, we can actually put good people in and change things. Uh, so it really does matter. And I, I think it's a shame that this country has rolled back so much of its civics education. There's only nine states left that still even teach it in high school.
0: Yeah.
2: One thing you lose when you take that away is is not just basic knowledge of government, which is really collapsed in this country, but also <laughs> why you should care. Yeah. Because they used to drill that into our heads, like that your vote matters and you know, getting involved matters and like, and we used to understand that we had a voice. And now, since you're just drowned out by all this money, it's very easy for people to think that politics doesn't matter. I mean, I mean, what you're saying here about not paying much attention to it, honestly, that is a norm. And it's yeah. nothing to be ashamed of. Because it's, it's just what we've done in the society to a lot of people. And we need to just do the best we can to, to wake people up to the power that we have.
0: Thank you so much, Liam, for being with us. And again, it's liamomara.org. O'Mara. O'Mara.
1: O'Mara. Sorry, man. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is why, again, I never complain about it. it doesn't... <laughs> <laughs> no. All right. So that
1: was
0: our interview with Liam O'Mara. Um, do you have any comments, thoughts, post-interview?
1: Um, I There's a glimmer of hope in my sad little nihilist brain and um that you know there's there's good in the world to be done and there are people out there willing to work really hard to do it and um I support that
0: yeah me too how about you I thought it was a good interview yeah yeah there's a lot of he he's really good and it's probably something with him being a history professor and working with kids and colleges and stuff he has a really good way of breaking information down that's complicated but making it understandable Mm -hmm. and I think that's really important it's something that a lot of politicians and don't know how to do like they have these big ideas but they don't know how to communicate it in a way that's effective and I think he has a really good way of communicating with people which I enjoy
1: I noticed that also and that he tends to want to stay on topic it was very instructor-like to to see like sometimes i mean we go off the rails we like to just go wherever our heart wants to talk about next but yeah. he would say like more He'd be like back to your point or you know what i think you were trying to say and would like restate what we were like fumbling through in an eloquent way yeah um i appreciated that that was like okay thank mm-hmm. you yes for turning nonsense into some an actual sentence that makes sense yeah could use more of that. We should hire him we should. just to be like the well, actually, guy for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> He'd be great.
0: So, like we already stated in the podcast, you can go to liamomara.org and you can donate. You can look at his platform, you know, get information on people that he's supporting or that are supporting him. Uh, you can follow him on Instagram at Liamomara42. And then you can follow us on Instagram at Tales from the Fog on Facebook at Tales from the Fog and on YouTube at Tales from the Fog. We have a bunch of great videos coming out, so be sure to uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel because there's a lot of fun stuff on there.
1: Mm -hmm. You can find me on Instagram at Veronica Voices or Stunt Soundy. And if you were listening for the last minute, we both pronounced it wrong. So right on. Good job. Good job.
0: (laughs) And until next time, we'll see you guys in the fog.
1: Bye, guys. Bye. I no longer want to be asked how I'm doing because the answer is the same. Bleak. I am bleak. How are you? Awesome. Great.